Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit GBT.com to learn more. What's up, Warriors? It's Dr. Z and Dr. C. What's going on, Dr. C? Living the dream, Dr. Z. Still uh, quarantining with the COVID and... uh wearing my mask but getting a little bit busier how about with you cool you know just trying to stay out of trouble man i think we um you know we worked hard to set up a pretty good episode for today so i think that that's going to be fun and i'm always excited to have conversations that are uh, more than just biology with you and we're going to really step outside the box on this one yeah i'm looking forward to it so we have a, a great guest um a young lady with sickle cell who's going to talk to us a little bit about her journey and uh, the word of the day, and you're going to hit us with a different kind of what's happening today, and we're going to go back in time. We're going to dive a little bit into the liberal arts, and you're going to put us into a time machine. Yeah, we're going to go back in time, and uh, Sickle Cell uh, Scientific Review is going to be uh, really oldie but a goodie. Awesome. Looking forward to it, man. Let's get to it. Sounds good. All right, so our next segment uh, is the What's Happening Now segment, where Dr. Z tells us what's going on. Um, A lot of times this is social media, but it can be any cool, interesting thing that Dr. Z comes across. So I always like hearing what Dr. Z is thinking about. So what's what's happening now, Dr. Z? Dr. Mike, I, uh, I appreciate you giving me, you know, the ability to sort of talk about the things that I'm finding interesting, even though you may disagree sometimes that the things that I find interesting may not be interesting to you, which, which comes up when I try to tell you about things like, things like TikTok and, and uh, Snapchat, etc. But I think you're going to enjoy this one. And, and I think the Warriors are going to enjoy this one. I've been dabbling a little bit in the sociology and psychology of sickle cell disease. Um, Because we always talk about this being a biopsychosocial disease. And as such, it is important for us as providers, as a community to not only focus on the biology, which we do frequently, but also focus on some of the other things, some of the other aspects, right? And and I know later today, we're going to talk about sort of a historic paper that kind of dove into some of the principles of how society and civilization move, you know, a little bit stepping out of our, our regular box. Sticking with that theme, I recently read a sociology piece that talked about ethnicity, and it talked about race, it talked about sort of the politics surrounding territory and ancestry and where you come from. And it was written by a guy named Bob Carter in the UK and his partner, Simon Dyson. And basically there was one, one um, statement that really struck me. And that was, there are 25,000 genes that make up the human genome. The instruction manual to make a human has 25,000 distinct parts. Of those 25,000 distinct parts, six of them control your skin color. And the striking thing to me about that was when we group human beings, by and large, the way we group them by the way they look is by the color of their skin. 
And that grouping is based on 0.02% of the instruction manual that makes their body. And to me, that was just an aha moment. I was taken aback by the vastness of that statement. So I wanted to bring that here so we could talk about it. What are your thoughts about that, man? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you know, it always struck me as crazy that you take something that is such a little part of you. It's like six twenty-five thousandths and and put so much emphasis on it and have so much uh so much focus on that. It seems kind of silly to me. And then when you start attributing, and I, I think, you know, that sociology is uh, above my pay grade. I'm just a, a simple hematologist and they use a lot of big words in there. But I think when you, you look at even the interplay of uh, genetics and uh, characteristics, not that great at predicting things to begin with, but when you just take a sample of six out of 25,000 and then try to make sweeping generalizations about people based on that, it's just silly. It's just so silly. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you, man. And, you know, with sickle cell disease, obviously the overarching narrative is that this is a, this is a black disease, right? We talk about sickle cell disease and the first thing you think of is this is a black disease with African origins. And what we know is that, and they, and they cover this in their, in their piece that, there are, through history, through the history of civilization, there have been five distinct times that the sickle cell gene independently mutated to come into existence, right? And of the five times that that happened, one time, it didn't happen in Africa. It happened in the sort of what we call the Indian Arab haplotype. It happened in the, in the Gulf region. So, so there's 20% of, of the genetic variation that's maybe not coming from Africa, right? Which it just, it kind of strikes me that like we as, sometimes as healthcare providers, as physicians, we're so used to putting people into boxes. We're so focused on sorting people into boxes that fit patterns and how we think that sometimes we miss the bigger picture. Yeah, no, there's a great book called How Doctors Think. And I would encourage anybody to read it. That's Jerome Groupman, right? Yeah, it's, um, he was a fantastic physician and, and uh, you know, ran major medical centers, but uh, writes fantastically too. And this book sort of explains how doctors approach problems. And I think it gets into a lot of uh, work from like uh, Kahneman and Tversky and um, sort of how people, your, your mind wants to take shortcuts. It's hard work to think and your mind wants to take shortcuts. And the easiest way to do that is pattern recognition. So instead of, you know, taking all the information in and weighing it and thinking it out, you just say, oh, sickle cell, African-American, like those two go together. But sometimes the patterns don't work. I remember at the sickle cell walk, Dr. Sherney used to have um, some of our patients who were not African-American but had sickle cell disease. They would wear these shirts that said sickle cell. It's not just a black thing. And I think, you know, that's one place where as doctors, we often fail is when people don't fit our patterns, our heuristics, our little scripts. And it's really easy to get missed. And the other time it happens, and I think this happens a lot to our warriors, 
is part of that picking up those patterns is you want everything to fit into one tight little story. So things that are related to sickle cell, you know, are easy to identify in a patient with sickle cell disease. So if somebody with sickle cell comes in and says, you know, I'm having pain in my stomach here, we'll say, oh, it's an abdominal sickle cell crisis. But people with sickle cell get appendicitis too, same as everybody else. And we'll often miss those because we're trying to fit everything into our little pattern and not really thinking it through and not going into great depth and not, and a lot of times that pattern works. A lot of times it is abdominal sickle cell crisis, but when it's not, we're in trouble because we're not, we're not thinking, we're just recognizing the pattern. And it, and it goes so much beyond even just biology, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same issue with like, let me give you an example. So it goes along the same lines with, for example, the reasons why a black patient, a black sickle cell patient who hits the ER has um, on average a longer time to wait to get their pain medication. And as healthcare providers, sometimes those patterns are harmful, right? Because you can have an emergency room physician that has one experience with a sickle cell patient who unfortunately ended up in the ER because the structurally racist healthcare system of the United States that doesn't provide access to medical care in the outpatient setting to adult patients with sickle cell disease, that patient ends up in the ER frequently with pain. Suddenly that ER physician has developed this pattern in his head that a black male with sickle cell disease who comes into the ER is just coming here to get opioid medication, right? And that pattern now backfires because now this guy has um, changed the lens with which he's looking at these patients going forward. So sometimes we get into these, these patterns can become very problematic. Oftentimes they're helpful, just like you said, for like specifically for medical purposes, right? Like that's how doctors think. Going back to this How Doctors Think book, you have a patient, this is how we're trained, where you have a patient that comes in with chest pain. And the question you're asked by your attending on rounds is what's the differential diagnosis, right? And you have, you have those patterns in your head. Like, you know, that if someone comes in with chest pain, it could be a heart attack. It could be his lung, you know, collapsed. It could be a pneumonia or whatever. Um, but you have these preset ways of thinking. And I guess to me, the biggest thing that I took away from, from this reading that I did was the construction of this pattern is so much bigger than just race. It's something that has built over hundreds of generations over thousands of years to get to the point that we're at. Um, so I think that all of us um, as a provider community can benefit from a little humility in how we approach some of these problems and um, be a little bit more delicate in how we group people. Thoughts on that, Dr. Mike? A lot of it has to do with trying not to group people, trying not to, you know, rely too much on those patterns, trying not to jump to conclusions and really trying to treat everyone as an individual and collect all the information you need before you make a decision. And I, I think this is true in medicine for sure, um, but I, I think it's true in everything we do. I, I think a lot of the, you know, problems we have as a society right now um, and even, you know, on an individual level when, when people are dealing with each other. And I, I think, you know, I know you love social media, Dr. Z, but I think this is particularly bad on social media is instead of, you know, giving the people the benefit of the doubt and uh, listening to people and, 
hearing out the whole story and people jump to conclusions. People rest on these heuristics and it's terrible. You know, it could be a police officer saying, you know, this person meets these criteria in my mind, they're a bad person and treating them as such. When if, you know, they knew him as a person, maybe, maybe what they're doing right now actually is bad, but the whole person isn't, or it could be, you know, uh, online somebody says something and you think boy that's stupid and you jump all over them and that stupid statement doesn't reflect them or maybe you took it out of context or put a whole lot of assumptions on what they're saying so i I, you know i think especially with race this is stupid because like you said you know the color of your skin is six genes out of twenty-five thousand. we have so much more in common and there are so many other you know, even on a gene level variants that make differences in physical characteristics or disease or health or then skin color, we, we all have to take a step back and realize where those things are pushing us in the wrong direction. Those jump into conclusions about things, you know, especially about race, because there's just, that's such a prevalent problem that people jump to conclusions based on skin color. But in everything, I think, really, we need to treat each other like individuals. We need to approach problems with uh, generosity and, and uh, listen to people and, and hear, hear their stories. You know, if somebody's coming in with pain medicine request, assume that it's because they have pain. Don't assume that, you know, because of the way they look or um, because of interactions you've had with other people in the past that th- they're uh you know drug seekers or something that's that's foolish and i i think uh it's it's challenging to do that i i think you know it's it's harder to think than to jump to conclusions but uh i think we all need to do that absolutely absolutely so that's what's been going on with social media dr mike thanks that was great dr z that's a little bit different what's happening now i'm used to facebook and uh twitter I'm not so used to sociology research. You threw me for a loop there. We're expanding our uh, footprint into the liberal arts. All right, Dr. Mike, I've got a word of the day for you. And we're going to go through the regular sort of um, troublesome process of me having you guess what the word is. Oh, it's fun. I get my riddle of the week. <laughs> so basically, what we're talking about today is uh, it relates to DNA. It relates to the instructions that come with every human being. It relates to the configuration our DNA is and based on sort of the information that um, a human being gets from mom and a human being gets from dad. We already did gene, Dr. Zadie. Ah, you're so close. We did talk about genes, but what we didn't talk about is what it means to be heterozygous for a gene. I've got it. Heterozygous. <laughs> You're a sharp one. That's the word of the day. All right. Heterozygous. You know, we, for most of our genes, um, at least the, the ones that aren't on the X or Y chromosome, um, we get a copy from our mom and a copy from our dad. So for most genes, we have two copies. There are some rare ones where you get more copies or, or some... Uh, sex-linked ones where you only get one, but for most of them, we have two copies. And that's true for the beta globin in hemoglobin. So you get one beta globin gene from your mom, one beta globin gene from your dad. And if those two genes 
are the same, then um, we say you are homozygous. So zygos comes from the zygote and it refers to the gene and homo means the same. So homozygous means you have uh, two copies of the same gene. So you could be homozygous for hemoglobin A, like you don't have any mutations, or you could be homozygous for hemoglobin S, so you have SS uh, or sickle cell. But heterozygous means you have different copies. So you have one of uh, one kind of gene, and the other copy is a, a different version of it. So it, uh, in this case, if you had sickle cell trait, we would say you're heterozygous for the sickle cell mutation. You have one sickle cell mutation, and the other copy is the wild type. Um, so that you're heterozygous for the mutation. So in sickle cell, we call that sickle cell trait, or we say um, maybe you're, you're a carrier, although um, sometimes having that one copy can make some functional difference as well. So some, some diseases in the heterozygous state, when you just have one copy of it, you're affected. And that's true to some extent with uh, sickle cell trait. You know, it's very different than having homozygous sickle cell, um, but there are some manifestations of sickle cell trait or being a heterozygote for the sickle cell mutation. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Sometimes I see the word compound heterozygote come around. What does that mean? That's a great question. So, you know, usually when we say heterozygous, we, we refer to the normal gene or the gene without a mutation as the wild type gene. And so usually if we say you're heterozygous for sickle cell trait, what we mean is you have one that has sickle cell trait and the other gene is the wild type. But there can be more than one mutation in the same gene. So for instance, in beta globin, there's C trait, which is a different mutation. So there you could have a compound heterozygous state where you have one gene that's sickle cell trait and one gene that is C trait. And then we'd say you have hemoglobin SC, or you're a compound heterozygote for those two different mutations. Um, so that that's a that's a really good that's a really good point. There there are other times when, like for instance, if it's a gene on the X or Y chromosome, or in rare cases where somebody has a gene deletion, you might only have one copy of the gene, um, and then we'd say you're hemizygous for that. So you have one copy, but you don't have the other normal copy. So you don't have two different copies. You just have half of the copies, so you're hemizygous for, for that. So I think uh, those are words you might hear in the clinic, heterozygous, homozygous, compound heterozygous, hemizygous, and so that's the word of the day. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike, for uh, dropping some bombs of knowledge on us, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Z. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. Hey there, Cheat Code listeners. We are here live, uh, me and Dr. Mike, with a very special guest today. We are going to be talking to a sickle cell warrior named Alexandria Smith. She goes by the name Alex 
today we decided that we were just going to spotlight her as a sickle cell warrior who, you know, kind of wanted to share her story with us. Um, so we're really happy to have you on, Alex. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Yeah, really. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thanks for reaching out. I'm excited. So Alex, walk us through sort of your um, your story. Where, where, where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I am 22 years old. I just graduated from George Washington University. So right now I'm based in the DMV area. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Definitely interesting graduation, but one for the books. Yeah, COVID graduation's no fun. It is not, but uh, it's made me appreciate the love that I've received this year. So The question that I always ask warriors is, when did you first realize that you were just like you? When did you get that first sort of, I guess, when did it dawn on you that, like, I have sickle cell disease? How old were you? What was happening? Early on, um, like elementary school, because there would be moments where I would miss a lot of school. Like, like I, I knew I was sick because obviously I was in the hospital. I went to Children's Scottish Rite in Atlanta. It's very small. I loved it. They knew me since before I knew myself. But I, I missed a lot of school and there was a lot of activities I couldn't participate in. If I participated in it, it the consequence was a crisis and then like a week or two out of school. I think I did ask my parents like what was wrong with or why I couldn't do certain things. And then, you know, they started to explain to me, you know, that I had sickle cell. and so. I was kind of, they never want to ever want to be, be ashamed of it. They want me to be proud of it. And I, I am now, but growing up, I was, I wouldn't, I guess a little ashamed. I was just nervous of telling folks that I had a disease because I didn't want elementary school students to think that I was, you know, had the cooties or anything like that. So a lot of times my friends wouldn't know why I was gone and I would come back and they're like, oh, you're back. And I'm like, yeah. And I would just kind of act like nothing happened or I don't know what excuse I said at the moment. I probably made up an excuse that I went out the country or something. I don't know. It wasn't until I think people started to find out, get my friends will find out I get sick because they would see me go to the clinic a lot. But yeah, that's when I realized I was pretty young. Elementary school, I would say maybe, maybe like six years old. Okay. And what type of sickle cell disease do you have? So I have SC um, and sometimes SS symptoms. Growing up, did you spend a um, significant amount of time in the hospital or were you sort of fortunate that you didn't have to spend so much time in the hospital? So I would say it kind of went in stages from like, I guess, since I was born until about high school. I did go to the hospital a lot. I would say elementary school was probably like once a month. And then uh, I started learning about pain management and learning my body, listening to it, not Overdoing it, I, I overdo it a lot because sometimes I would even forget that I have sickle cell. And I would say uh, around high school, freshman year of high school was about the first time that I didn't go in a hospital for like an entire year, which was like, whoa. And uh, throughout high school, I, I rarely had episodes bad enough to go in the hospital. Now, I would have moderate crises, like just a little pain here and there. I'll probably take like some medicine to kind of help it go away or I might just miss a day of school, but nothing where it was like I was in the hospital per se. Um, and then college had its waves. I think this had to do with stress and adjusting to new environment. And also I was blessed to go to Children's National. I don't know. I think you guys also interviewed Dr. Campbell. He's my name Actually. No, it's breaking up for me too. I, 
I, I got that you see Drew Campbell though. That's great. All right, so let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about. Let's talk. You were telling us that you were fortunate that you got some care at Children's National with with our friend Drew. Yeah, Dr. Campbell. He's my hepatologist here in the D.C. area. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you guys heard the other the backstory of just how my crises were pretty good when I got to high school, but college kind of spiked up a little bit, I think, due to stress and stuff. But um, yeah, I got the privilege of work working with Dr. Campbell. And uh, unfortunately, this is my last hurrah with them because I'm officially 22. So um, I have to transition now to a different hospital. So far with COVID, my crisis hasn't been bad. I've been trying to stay far away from the hospital. So yeah. Great, great. So did you have anybody you knew growing up who had sickle cell also or any role models, adults who had sickle cell who kind of tell you about it and tell you how to manage things or was it just seeing the doctors and getting information there so i wasn't necessarily like friends or close to any one my age was sickle cell but i had a teacher in elementary school who had it and i also had a church member of mine who had it as well i think she had ss so she was frequently sick so um I think when I met her, I would kind of it kind of freaked me out because I, I would notice how sick she was all the time. But then when I met my elementary school teacher, like she was like really healthy, she worked out, like she would run. I can never run, so you know, like it really did give me like hope. Um, and she also moved to Dubai and just living like a very great life. So um, yeah, those are say the two people that I've met. It's really important to have that, right? It's really important to have that like positive sort of person having a positive experience that you can see and sort of try to be like, that's, that's great. I'm glad that you had that. What, um, t- tell us a little bit about life besides sickle cell disease. Tell us about what you enjoy doing and, and what you do in your spare time. And tell us uh, sort of outside of the sickle cell box about Alex. Well, yeah, so that's why I mentioned earlier, sometimes I forget that I have it, which is a pro and a con, because I think that I do too much. So growing up, I was involved within the arts. So I did theater, I did dance. My parents even put me and my sister in like tennis, golf, a bunch of different sports we could figure out what we'd like. Now on the sports, I, I was fortunate to do a lot of things that I realized a lot of sickle cell patients haven't, haven't been, had the opportunity to do, which I find to be extremely thankful and blessed for but my career in the sports world has definitely is very short i tried swimming my sister made it all the way through competitive slam and i think my lungs almost collapsed when i tried swimming so that was a wrap for that so Mm. don't really know how to swim all the way yet but that is a goal of mine when i get some hot water and uh what else did i do dance was the one thing that i could consistently do and not get extremely sick so i did competitive dance there were some moments where i would overdo it and i would end up in the hospital but all my coaches all my teachers are very understandable and it was fine so i actually danced from like six to like high school and that's what i love to do and I tried track. <laughs> I tried track in middle school. I was I, I was a sprinter, and I outdid myself so bad that I got a crisis the very first meet, and then I had to end my track career there. Oh man! It was good that I tried. I was just happy that I was able to like try it. Um, and it was fun because track kind of just runs in my family. Yeah, I love that. I love that you went out there and tried it because 
yeah why why let anything hold you back right from trying new experiences that's how my parents were they didn't want sickle cell to define me they didn't want it to be you know of course it's something i had to be mindful about but they were just really strict on me knowing my body listening to it and like telling people when i'm sick because growing up i would lie and be like i'm fine but after a while when you know me you kind of look at my face and know that i'm not telling the truth the older i get will quickly tell you that i'm not feeling well but Growing up, that was a challenge of mine because I didn't want to feel left out of a lot of things. I wanted to feel normal. So, so you mentioned your siblings, Alex. Tell me, tell me a little bit about this. This is something that I always wonder. When you grow up in a house, being were you the only were you the only child in the house with sickle cell disease? Yeah. So I only so it's me and them. I have my older sister Zoe. So she has the trait, but she um she really didn't have any issues at not until. Honestly, recently that she starts to feel a little bit of stuff. How is it having um, like a sibling that is not a sickle cell warrior who may not, you know, I mean, just tell me a little bit about like your, you know, growing up. Is it, is it tough? Is it challenging to have like a sibling that doesn't have to be as careful, for example, as you for some of the things that you're doing? Was that something that would come up frequently for you? Honestly, I mean... The only time it really got to me was when she was able to continue her swim lessons and like I couldn't. But by then I understood why I couldn't. And she was all she's always been like very protective and loving and supportive. So it was never like a oh dang, I wish I could do what she does. And the older we got, because we're only two years apart, but the older I got, I was able to like hang out with her sometimes. We weren't doing any type of like crazy physical activities where it will overexert my body or anything. Or, or if we do happen to go out to go to like an amusement park or do something where I might, you know, possibly overdo it. Like she was very like, maybe almost too protective. Like Alex, you need to sit down or you need to do this or don't get yourself into a crisis um, or don't stress yourself into a crisis, try and keep up. But my more so comparison of what I couldn't do really came from my peers. That was where my struggle really was. It was less about what my sister was doing. It was more about what everyone else around me was able to do and what I couldn't. So it sounded like going into high school, you kind of figured out what you needed to do to keep from having sickle cell problems. What were those things and how did you, how'd you figure them out? And do you still do them to these days? Or has it changed? So my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer when I was like in seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. Um, so I had to start going to a therapist that that worked with children um, in the hematology center. So I, I just started going to her like maybe like once a week and then it got to like once a month. I think a lot of my crisis had to do with like the fear of not understanding of what I had. So I would get nervous like, oh, am I going to die or like, one, you know, one day I could wake up and have a crisis or I don't know where I have a crisis. It was just like this uncertainty. So I was consistently stressed all the time. And I was stressed about my mom. I was stressed about just everything at like a super, super young age. And then so around high school, when I was got start to just, just understand and, and just come to grips of what I had and be accepted fully, that's when I started to actually listen to pain management advice and breathing exercises and like, when they say listen to your body, it means like feel it. When I know I feel off, sometimes my body does this thing before a crisis even happens. I just know it's about to come. Like I can't, I can't describe it fully, but I would just feel kind of tired. I would feel just off for the day. And in a couple hours, I start to feel something I'm like, ah, oh, okay, that's what it was. I was having a crisis. So I think that's why I got a little better. Um, just taking medicine, like right 
when I feel something to try to knock it out the park. Tell somebody and not try to hide it. Drink a lot of water. They always stress water, water, but it's serious. So drink a lot of water. I think that's what helped me. So is it just recognizing when it was coming on and then taking care of yourself? And also yeah. not, not being so anxious because you understood better. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and being okay with going to the hospital and just getting some fluids. <laughs> that's great. I think that's really helpful for all the warriors out there. I mean, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of our warriors know all of those things, but I, I think some, some might benefit from it. Um, and even the ones who know it, to put it at the front of your mind and taking care of yourself is so important. We always get caught up in all these other things going on and put other people's problems on us. But taking care of yourself is so important. You you uh, mentioned earlier transitioning, and we we worry about this a lot. We see a lot of problems arise when in a perfect setup here. You're moving from Atlanta to Washington D.C. You're moving out of the house. Mom's not taking care of your laundry. She's not making sure you get your medicine. She's not telling you to get some rest. And you have a new doctor now and maybe a, a different setup and they don't know you as well and you don't know them. And, and um, a lot of times it's an adult doctor service where they don't care if you miss your appointment. So did you have problems with that transition? How'd that go? What are, what are things we can learn from it? The transition was definitely hard. Senior year of, of high school, I, I, I made all my last rounds with my pediatrician, hematologist, and everyone. And they were all just kind of telling me to just gear up for, you know, pop the real world when it comes to entering to adult hospitals. And uh, I remember my hematologist back in Atlanta gave me a super thick, a packet of paperwork of my history and he was like just bring this with you when you go you know when you have when you go to your new appointments and meet your new doctors it's just the proof that I have sickle cell and like reference for them to call them so that way if I'm in a crisis they don't have to like run all this blood work and stuff before they can determine I have sickle cell before they can give me medicine it was like here just give this to them so they know so that was a blessing because my first experience was just kind of traumatizing that year was a lot because I had lost insurance because my mom had moved out of the country so when she moved out of the country I lost um, insurance so I, I my dad was trying to get me on his insurance and that was the transition between two different this is 2016 so this is when the administrations were like changing and so I couldn't get on my dad insurance because I was now in a different state thankfully I ended up getting DC Medicaid which was like a blessing until this day. I don't know how I was able to do it, but I got it. And I was, I was insurance list for about four months and being insurance list for four months as a sickle cell patient is like terrifying um, because I didn't know when I would get sick. I didn't know where to go if I got sick and I was just nervous. And all I had was about like <laughs> a bottle full of hydrocodone. This is my first semester of college. I'm very spiritual. So by, by the grace of God, I, <laughs> the day that I got insurance, was the day, the, the very next day I got admitted to the hospital. Um, those four months, I was completely healthy. I just continued to pray. My dad's a pastor. He always prayed for me every day, tried to keep my, my, my diet right and um, just listen to my body. But again, I go to George Washington University. And so that day I was ex not excited to have a crisis, but I was blessed to know that I had insurance. So I went down to the ER and I told them that I was a sickle cell patient. Well, first off, I went there and it was kind of very dismissive, like, oh, just take a seat. But when I got in, I was on my friend's back because the crisis was on my legs. And so my roommate put me on her back and literally put me in an Uber, which was would have been a five-minute walk, but I couldn't walk. And then she carried me into the ER room. 
Um, so obviously I'm looking distressed. I don't look right, but it was just very like this, okay, sit down. And then they call me up and I told them I'm having a crisis and they're like, a crisis. And I'm like, uh, like I have sickle cell. Like they didn't even know what crisis meant. And they were like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So just sign here. And so I signed. So I'm at children's. I'm used to, when I say I'm a sickler, it, it's, you go straight to the back. They take your um, vitals, get you some medicine. Like it is, it is quick. Um, but no, that was not the case. I waited in the ER room in extreme pain for five hours. Five hours before being seen. Uh, unbelievable. By a doctor. That's yeah. crazy. And I say unbelievable, but actually your story is what sickle cell warriors face all the Every time. day. <laughs> Every day. Um, it was, I could cry and cry about, think about it. Was, was the ER busy at least? Um. Well, it actually, so this gets down to the deeper issue is that GW, GW Hospital is the closest public hospital that takes, like, you know, medicating things like that in D.C. So it was just filled with uh, a bunch of people because that was, like, the closest hospital that most people um, can go to and that their insurance, that the hospital accepts their insurance. So, um, yeah, it was a long line, and it was, there were a couple of people, and they're walking in there that were obviously, like, high off drugs and things like that just trying to I when I finally got back in the ER you could my the person next to me was they came in there five days in a row trying to get more Dilaudid and the doctor was like look <laughs> I know this is you know nothing's wrong with you but so when they're I think that they're dealing with that and they assume everyone that walks in the door is, is like that um and so even within those five hours I had to I had about Thankfully, I had a great support system. So people were bringing me food. I always had a friend that stayed with me. Literally, they were bringing my, my medication. And I was taking my hydrocodone while in the living room because I asked, well, in the waiting room, because I asked for a hydrocodone or something. And the most they can give me was ibuprofen. That's so crazy. Yeah. They were like, we can only give you ibuprofen. And I was like, do you know what an ibuprofen is to me? <laughs> that, was, that is what? Um, and at first, they wouldn't even give me a heating pad. And then it took my friend a little bit more aggressive, but no, like she genuinely needs <laughs> something. Um, and uh, it was just, the treatment was absolutely horrendous. Like I was just terrified to think that this is my life now. Like, is this what it's going to be like? If that was the case, I could have just stayed home and just prayed that it was going to go away and just take my medicine. Um, so uh, yeah, I finally um, got in the back and it gave me fluids and it gave me Dilaudid and by then, though, I was calling my dad because I just felt like I shouldn't. I didn't. I didn't feel comfortable staying there. Yeah, understandably. Oh, minus the fact that it took it took four nurses to stick me. I tell them from the jump, I'm a sickler. My veins roll. They're small. They blow. And everyone was like, "No, it's fine. I got it. I got it." It took the, for the fourth nurse to grab an uh, um, an ultrasound device to find my vein. So um, now I was went through four nurses and got stuck like seven times before I was uh, properly <laughs> got an IV in me. And that has happened multiple times throughout my life. But after that, I was on the phone with my dad and he was like, no, I just called children's and they said you can go until you're 22. So as soon as I got my Dilaudid, I checked myself out and I went over by Howard and to, to children's nationals. And um, that's why I met Dr. Campbell and I got set up with a social worker there. Those are the two people that kind of just kept me good throughout my college experience so um to say the least i am very nervous now that that's gone but hey you know i'll figure it out <laughs> so an another transition now yeah <laughs> another transition well alex um 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm proud of what you've accomplished outside of the box of sickle cell disease. That's, that's, that's so wonderful. And um, I'm really glad that you were able to come on and share your story with us. You know, one question I want to ask you before we jump off is you said your dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Did, how did that factor into dealing with sickle cell disease? Where do you, did you feel like spirituality, religion, um, did that help you with um, some of your coping mechanisms? Oh, tremendously. My parents, my parents were great. And I think the great thing about my dad was that um, having your pastor as your dad was just like the best because again, my anxiety was always on 10. So just out of way of, reminding me, you know, of who I am and, and, and that God has, has always been with a team to protect me. And I just carried that along with me throughout my entire life and through my adulthood. Like my dad jokes that, oh, you're God's favorite because things will just happen. And it's just a joke. Just don't take it literally. Um, <laughs> no one's God's favorite. We're all his favorite. <laughs> it, it just, it, the joke just came out of it because there's just, I've done a lot of things that I was not supposed to be able to do. Like, I mean, like finishing school in four years while having crises and I transitioned into the business school, which was very hard. I started a couple organizations, like, you know, not to like, fl- like flex or anything. It's mainly just because when I'm talking about it, I'm thinking like, wow, like I really was not supposed to do half the things that I have done. And it wasn't, honestly, it's beyond me. I really do truly believe that it was because of God and like my purpose. And it is because of my relationship with God and my dad, I realized that like sickle cell has been like my superpower. Like that is what has made me who I am today. Like that's what keeps me driven. That's what I, I, I learned how to just continue to, to live and to move forward. Like I would be in the hospital and was still doing projects and assignments. Like my mindset is that life got to life got to it still goes on. I can't, I can't stop. And so God has been the best medicine that I've had so far. Um, I do my morning med- my morning spiritual meditation through COVID. And that's also, I think, been a really re- a good, I think that's been a reason why I haven't been so sick during the stressful time because I've been very close. I feel very close to God. But yeah, that is, I, that has uh, definitely been a blessing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear how different people find different ways to cope with what they're dealing with. And, and I'm so happy that you found that, that thing that works for you. Just as we're, as we're leaving, do you communicate regularly with other sickle cell warriors? Are you pretty connected with the community? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so I, like I told you before, um, I was actually excited to do this because this is the first time I've kind of openly talked about it because I'll be friends with someone for like, like a long time and they don't even know that I have it. My boyfriend didn't know I had it till like four months into knowing me. He's like, what? Um, all that to say is that I'm just now starting to seek out to other patients. Thankfully for like Instagram, they have like a, I found this page for like sickle cell memes. And I was like, oh my God, this is like so relatable. And it was like a bunch of people on there. <laughs> and people, I, I right, I, Imani hit me up like a month, maybe like on World Sickle Cell Day, I made a post and um, just telling people I had it. And like a lot of people reached out to me and some are like, oh, I have it too, or my dad or my brother, things like that. Growing up, I was always invited to the teen clinics and things like that. But honestly, I just didn't want to go because it was just a reminder of what I had. And I was like, I don't want to go around campfire or whatever, talking about something that I really don't even understand or feel comfortable having. But looking back, I wish, I wish I took that opportunity. I wish I did. But I am now on the quest of finding other people 
like me because there's so many of us and we're so different. To our young warriors, go to camp. Yes. Fun. <laughs> yes. Go. Please go. I wish. I wish I can go back and do it. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, once this podcast comes out, you're going to find that a lot of people in the community are going to probably reach out to you. So in our show notes, I hope so. in, our, in our show notes, we'll share um, like your Instagram handle and your Twitter handle, whatever, um, to get everyone connected. And what, what a great role model. Just graduated from college, figuring out what you need to do to keep yourself well, dealing with transition and finding people who can help you out. Yes. Fantastic. And a quick and quick plug, if there are any sickle cell patients that consider themselves a creative, I actually am starting my own platform called Creatives Connected. It's for black and brown creatives to find an easier way to connect with one another and network and collaborate. So I am on my seed stage of my venture. I have some amazing business mentors and I'm gathering a team now, but I, my goal is to help as many black and brown creatives as I can, especially during this hard time. So I guess when you put my Instagram, I'll also put that down there too if they're interested to see what that's all about. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, Miss Alex, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. We really appreciate you and we hope you keep living well with Sickle Cell. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. What's going on, Dr. Mike? Not a whole lot. How are you doing, Dr. Z? I'm doing all right, man. I'm, uh, you know, just trying to hang in through this pandemic, man. The spike is coming back, you know, just trying to keep yeah, myself no occupied. Good. Yeah, I know. Um, but, you know, things like this, uh, the opportunity to sit here and learn from you about cool things is uh, what makes makes uh, things fly a little bit a little bit faster. Yeah, I, I love doing these. I learn a lot from you and a lot from our guests. It's uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. So today I think we have um, a little bit of a different spin on the Red Cell Research Review for our Warriors. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I tried to change it up a little bit. So a lot of the articles have been, you know, seminal phase three trials of new drugs in the New England Journal of Medicine. But we did an episode, a new article, we did an episode with uh, uh, case reports. So today I'm going to go deep into history. How deep into history are we going? We're going back uh, almost 70 years here, Dr. Z. Well, it's like you're putting us in a time machine. Yeah. So this is a paper from the American Journal of Human Genetics from 1958. So I guess not quite 70 years, maybe 62 years back in time. And um, this is entitled The Distribution of the Sickle Cell Gene in Liberia. And it was written by a biological anthropologist from the University of Michigan by the name of Frank B. Livingstone, who, who did a lot of work with the genetics of sickle cell at that time. Okay, so we got a Michigan native. Yeah, I think he was actually from Massachusetts, but uh, wound up at U of M. And, and uh, he was working there um, with a guy called James Neal, who, who uh, is famous geneticist for finding the genetics of sickle cell trait. He described that sickle cell was an autosomal recessive disease that, uh, you know, you inherited one gene from each of your parents. So that goes a little bit with our word of the day with heterozygous. But um, Dr. Livingstone also worked with Wolf Zulzer, who was here. And I was excited in reading this uh, 62-year-old paper that uh, some of the work in it was done here. That's so cool. 
Yeah. I mean, we're really standing, you know, like Dr. Sherney at the, in our last episode, Dr. Sherney talked about standing on the shoulders of your ancestors. And when stuff like this comes up, it really makes you realize that you're truly standing on you're the shoulders of your scientific ancestors. And right here in Michigan, man, we've got now between Tom Cooley, Wolf Zalzer, now we're adding Frank Livingstone to yeah. this like JV amazing Neal. group of hematologists. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think it was uh, Isaac Newton said, if I saw farther than other people, it was just because I was standing on the shoulder of giants. And uh, I don't know if I've seen farther than other people, but it, we're definitely on the shoulders of giants here in Michigan. And it's uh, re- really an honor to be involved with that legacy. Dr. Livingstone, I presume, wrote this paper in 1958. And this was hot on the heels of um, another guy called Allison had traveled to Africa. And he went to all sorts of different areas of Africa and was getting blood samples to see what the prevalence of the sickle cell mutation was. And so they they had a sort of uh, quick test that we still use sometimes. It's called a sickle cell solubility test. So there's a chemical you can add to the sample. And if you have sickle cell, then the hemoglobin precipitates. It sort of comes out of solution. And so it allows you to see who has a trait and uh, who doesn't. So a way to do sort of like what we call a sickle screen. Yeah, it's exactly what we do for the sickle screen, actually. So it doesn't tell you if the person's a carrier or if they actually have sickle cell, but does tell you if they're if they don't have sickle cell gene at all. So Allison had gone around Africa and tested different populations and found that the sickle cell trait or the the prevalence of sickle cell mirrored the pattern of malaria. And so that's where we got this idea that um, sickle cell trait could protect you from uh, falsiparum malaria, which is, uh, you know, uh, um, throughout uh, a lot of history, the number one killer of people in, in the world. So um, being protected from that was a huge advantage. And so that's how sickle cell became so prevalent. If you inherited the sickle cell trait gene and uh, there was a lot of malaria around, you were more likely to survive and have children and pass on that sickle cell trait. And if uh, you didn't have that, then you were more likely to die from malaria and, and not have uh, children. So that that made the uh, sickle cell trait much more common in areas where there was a lot of malaria. Yeah. So there was uh, selection for the sickle cell trait. So Livingstone went to Liberia, um, which is in Western Africa, and he wanted to look at the populations there. And there is a lot of malaria in Liberia. He uses the term, it's an mal- intensely malarious region. Huh. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I've never heard malarious. Um, (laughs) I I like it. I'm going to start saying that. So he went to the Firestone rubber plantation. So like the tire people, you know, rubber actually came from a tree in the past. They didn't have, you know, synthetic rubber. And so they, they grew these trees in Liberia and, and then, uh, you know, they had to harvest it. And, and so they had, um, 20,000 people from Liberia working on this plantation, which was located near Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. And he went there and found that there are many different tribes in Liberia, but they were all pretty well represented as workers in this, uh, in this plantation. And so he collected samples from, from the people there and did that sickle cell screen on them and then sort of put the data together by tribe. And he also got samples and sent them here to 
the Child Research Center in Detroit, was, which was here at Children's Hospital of Michigan at the time and was run by Dr. Zolzer, to verify that. What he found is really interesting, but uh, one thing really stuck out to me in, in the background of this, because the, the test he was using couldn't tell people with sickle cell trait versus people who had homozygous sickle cell disease, you know, it could make the data not as accurate. And he said, well, we don't really have to worry about that because uh, recent studies indicate that homo people homozygous for the sickle cell gene very rarely survive the first few years of life. 1958 in Liberia. So it's very unlikely that the results of this survey uh, described in this paper include more than a few homozygotes, if any at all. What a humbling thought. Yeah, I mean, it shows you how far we've come. We have a long way to go, but but uh, we've we've come pretty far. And, and I and I actually, I mean, I mean, coming back to that, I actually think that I, I don't even know how far we've gone in places like Liberia. Like, I mean, the story of five percent and ninety-five percent keeps coming up, right? Like the five percent of patients that we have in America, Canada, Europe, are just the five percent. Absolutely, and. So far, we've done one out of uh, 13 Cheat Codes episodes, about the 95%. So maybe we should do another one soon. It's true. He broke it down, and there, there are 16 tribes that he said uh, were autochronous, were native to that. Autochronous. Yeah, that's a good word. I'm glad you, I'm glad you sometimes pick up stuff from me, too. <laughs> Dr. Z taught me a few words this morning from a paper he was reading. They had more than four letters. <laughs> There were 16 of these tribes that were native to Liberia, um, and, and they break down by region. So some of the tribes uh, lived in the northern part of Liberia, some lived in the central part of Liberia, and some lived in the southern part of Liberia. There were also three tribes that were not native to Liberia, but had moved into Liberia. They were from the United States and the French uh, West Indies and uh, had moved into um, Liberia. And so he, he got samples from um, all of these groups, in, in total about 5,000 samples, and 443 had sickle cell trait. He broke down the frequency of sickle cell trait by tribe. And so there was a, a Webo tribe where zero out of 77 people had sickle cell trait. And then there was a Kissy tribe where 58 out of 298 had uh, sickle cell trait. So anywhere from zero to 20%, depending on the tribe all in Liberia. It's a huge gradient within the same country. Within the same country and all under pressure from malaria. So um, because there's a lot of malaria there, you, you would expect that they would all be under the same selection pressure. And he went and looked to see if there was a difference by age, by gender, and uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't find that. He also compared it to the frequency of samples from our clinic in Detroit, um, from the outpatient clinic, and also from the children of the workers at the Firestone Plantation and, and some patients at the Liberian Institute of Tropical Medicine. So he, he found these uh, differences in that the group in the um, northern part of Liberia had a lot of sickle cell trait, and in southern Liberia, not very much, and uh, in central Liberia, sort of in between. I wonder what the reason for that is. Yeah, so he came to the conclusion that it had to do with uh, migration of people, and that it, you know it, it wasn't because of selection. So that uh, you know in the not too distant past, um, some of these populations had moved in. And there were some interesting things about that because some of these populations had migrated to other areas in Africa and 
they speak similar languages. So you could say, you know, this group of people in the Ivory Coast or in Portuguese Guinea are of the same ancestry. They speak the same language. The the people share a lot of culture. And and so that that tribe had migrated to multiple different places. Um, But even there, he found that there were very different levels of, of sickle cell trait in those different populations that's so interesting so probably you know just just the small group of people who had moved to one area and sort of founded a a new branch of the tribe in that area happened to not have sickle cell trait where another group did so i i just thought it was uh sort of a a very historical and uh, interesting perspective on sickle cell trait. And we talked today about heterozygous and and sickle cell trait. So I I thought this this might fit in. No, this is really cool. But it also gives us a little bit of information about um, malaria and, and sickle cell and about, you know, the patterns of sickle cell inheritance. And, and I think that one of the points that comes across is, you know, sometimes we like to, going back to sort of what I talked about in the What's Happening Now section, um, sometimes we like to lump people together by the sort of just by the most common thing about them. For sure. And, you know, I mean, some of these things, you see why why you do them. Like if a group of people from a certain area have a high prevalence of sickle cell, you might assume uh, that goes with sickle cell. But of course, we know that uh, there are always outliers and it's never good to assume. So Yeah. And, and, and I think that this whole concept of how the way society moves and the types of things that society does really influences their biology. Absolutely. And I mean, here you have a group of people all from Liberia, um, but there's these huge variations in the genetic distribution of, of sickle cell trait. So that's just in one country. So to you know, make assumptions on a worldwide scale about populations and, and genetics and disease, um, you know, you're going to be wrong a lot of the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, I mean, this this concept of like in the north, there were these sort of sparsely dis, sort of these like very these populations of um, sort of pockets of people that were spread out in an area with not so much water, an area that didn't have too many mosquitoes, right? Driving some of this compared to the South where you had this yam cultivation that was um, resulting in this burning of forests and collection of water, these stagnant water pools driving lots of mosquitoes, which of course carry the malaria bug and the pressure of having sort of a sickle cell trait there is very advantageous um so that 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 was really interesting to me and um i'm I'm really happy that you you brought this um discussion to to cheat codes today thanks dr z i liked it all right guys hope you enjoyed that wow that was a hell of a ride to dr mike that was fun dr z man i feel like we um I feel like we traveled all around the world in one episode here. We got a warrior from the D.C. area. We got a little bit of the liberal arts from the United Kingdom. And then you took us to Africa. Yep. And that uh, liberal arts stuff hurt my brain a little bit, Dr. Z. (laughs) I'm definitely not cut out for it, man. But uh, I just wanted to remind you guys, if uh, man, if you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you like, you rate, 
you subscribe and you share with somebody who you think could learn a little bit about sickle cell disease. Me and Dr. Mike love putting on these, these episodes for you guys. So keep coming back for more information. Keep living well with sickle cell. Dr. Mike, any parting words? Yeah. Follow us on uh, Twitter at Imagineer and at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Warriors. Peace. Peace.